Before we get started, we want to let you know that AHR Interview is available to stream and subscribe to on iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud. To find us, use the search term American Historical Association. Welcome to AHR Interview, a production of the American Historical Review. I'm Daniel Story. In this episode, AHR editor Alex Lichtenstein speaks with filmmaker Robert Green about his latest work, the 2018 film Bisbee 17. In it, Green examines the complex and troubled history of Bisbee, Arizona, a mining town located near the state's southern border. The 17 in the title refers to the central focus of the film, the 1917 illegal removal of more than a thousand striking mine workers and many of their local supporters by the mining company Phelps Dodge, a scarring event now known simply as the Bisbee Deportation. Green went about the examination in a somewhat unusual way. He involved present-day residents of the town in reenacting key aspects of the deportation, an innovation that effectively transforms the film from a straightforward historical documentary into a far more complex examination of history, memory, and memorialization. Bisbee 17 is the subject of a roundtable titled Recreating the Bisbee Deportation on Film, which appears in the AHR's June 2019 issue. Green's other critically acclaimed films include the Gotham Awards-nominated Actress, released in 2014, the 2011 Fake It So Real, and the 2010 Katie with an Eye. He currently serves as filmmaker-in-chief at the Murray Center for Documentary Journalism at the University of Missouri. Welcome, Robert Green, to the AHR interview. Uh, we're here to talk about your film, Bisbee 17, which is featured in uh, this month's issue of the American Historical Review. I wanted to ask you, what brought you to the town of Bisbee in the first place? Why did you decide to make this film about an event that I think American labor and radical historians are familiar with, but few other people are. What, what impelled the vision for the film? Yeah, so first, uh, the first time I came to Bisbee was 2003. My mother-in-law, or my future mother-in-law at the time, uh, was get bought like a uh, couple mining cabins that we were going to turn into, you know, sort of like a family get-together place, uh, basically. Uh, you know, and they were just up on Tombstone Canyon. And I had never been... I had never spent much time in the in the desert at that point, and so I sort of fell in love with the place. And uh, so you felt, weren't attracted necessarily by the historical resonance or well, anything like well, that. Well, she, she's a historian, so I see. Okay, she, yeah, she she's a historian, and she was the kind of mother who would like, you know, t- during like when whenever there would be they'd have like family vacations, they just drive around to tiny towns, and so it made complete sense. I knew that like going there, there was some, there was something there. You know what I mean? Like I, I knew that go, like there's a, this place has got an interesting history. Right. Okay. Part of the reason why they, they, we would have even been talking about going there. Right. So I knew that was already built into the place. And then when you're there, of course, uh, I mean, have, have you ever spent any time in Bisbee? I've, I've never been down there. No. So Bisbee is a place where you absolutely feel the weight of, I mean, you, you feel like ghosts are swirling around the town. I mean, it's, it's a, and it, because the, the post office is the same as it was, you know, 120 years ago, you know, it's the, mm. it feels it, it, and it, and because it's sort of, you know, it got frozen in time a little bit in, in the seventies when the, when the mine mining companies left, 
and the mines shut down, uh, you know, more or less main, main, the main mining shut down that it just, there, there's a strangeness to the place and it feels trapped in a couple of different eras at once. And you feel the sort of layers of history and present always collapsing onto each other. Right. And it's, it's a, it's an art town that str- like sort of struggles to define itself every, all the time. It's a, uh-huh. it's a, it's a sort of a tourist town, but not really. It's a place that has good food, but, but like, you know, it's, it's a, it's, it's always in limbo. Right. And I, and I fell in love with it. And so, so what struck me about, about the people you interview and about the town and surprised me a bit was two, three generations removed from the events depicted in the film, this deportation in 1917, there still are a lot of memories. That is, the people in the town haven't moved on. A lot of the descendants of the people engaged in the 1917 struggle still live there and have different and contending ideas about what happened. Yeah, because the people who stayed after the mining companies shut down were the most entrenched mining families, basically. So the the the, the more transient workers left. They went to, to go find other places to work in 1975. So the people like uh, the Rays or Richard or the people who you're talking about who can talk about this sort of as a generational thing uh, were there because they loved Bisbee the most and they and their families were most tied to that place. And so, which means effectively they were most tied to the company. They were most tied to the company mentality because- Feltstodge, that is. Well, Feltstodge, Feltstodge and other companies. I mean, there, it wasn't just, it was a company town meeting. Feltstodge was the dominant company, but there was there were several, there were four main, main mining companies there, Feltstodge being by far the largest. But Bisbee would not exist without these companies. So when you're tied to the land, literally it's a place where people's leases are still owned. The, the leases for their, their land is still owned by the mining companies. Uh-huh. The people who say they own their homes don't even own their own homes. Because, because it's land, still owned by the mining company, which owns all the land. The land, the town, the existence of the place itself is completely tied up in, this, in, the, in, the, in the capitalistic reason why it was created. So... So yeah, so but those so the 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 old conflict was like workers and owners, right? Like that was the old old conflict forever and ever and ever in a mining town and in a company town. But then when the mining co- company shut down, it became sort of old mining families and the new liberal sort of uh, people who came into town, like Lori and and Chris and a couple other people that are in the film. And and those people come into town, they fall in love with this place, they buy cheap land, they. They like, you know, get these places to live and they're like, this is a great art community. And then they find out there was a mass deportation and it becomes, it's a real conflict. And it's mm-hmm. a conflict I experienced. So when you decided to make the film, I mean, one of the most innovative aspects of it, of course, is your your recreation or reenactment of the events by using the townspeople as the reenactors, essentially. And all those, I think you and I talked about this before, there are precedents for this, the Battle of Orgreave, a film made about the miners' strike in, uh, in Yorkshire in the 1980s, was then recreated 20 years ago later by a filmmaker, but you're doing a gap of 100 years, very different. Did you know you were going to do this reenactment when you started making the film, or did that come to you in the process? Yeah, so back in 2003, five years, six years before I made my first feature film, I was making short films. I had not made a feature film yet, uh, and uh, meaning, you know, a, a longer film. And I, I, my first idea was let's reenact the deportation with the locals. So it, it, it was even that was the the germ of the whole. That idea was the germ of the whole thing, and so I had, but I really had no idea what that meant. I didn't know like how do you execute something like that, and what and what are the ramifications of it, and what the, what what the idea was. But I did know 
that, like I was saying, this place felt like the past and the present were collapsed at all points, you know? So like the, 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 it, to me, it seemed like a totally logical thing, including like the anachronistic aspect of it, the performance aspect of it. All of that seemed right off the bat. That was the starting idea. 15 years before. 15 years before we ever made the film, it was already, that, that was. And were people in the community resistant to this reenactment well, at all? Or did, was everyone game? Yeah, no, because people, I mean, I would say the transition, I mean, the Tombstone's 20 minutes away and Bisbee doesn't want to be Tombstone. And that's meaning just, what? Meaning Tombstone reenacts its history or fake history, you know. As a tourism site, they market their heritage. As a, yeah, oh. as a as a Disney world in the West kind of thing. And Bisbee is adamant that first of all, they, you know, there's a real cultural tension between Bisbee. Bisbee's the left le leading city, the only blue dot in the red sea, mm. Arizona. And, uh, and Tombstone is a far right leading city. Like there's a real, and I'm not even exaggerating. Like there are bands of people that come from Tombstone to Bisbee, you know, to start trouble with the lefties. I mean, it's like a real weird, you know, tell two cities kind of thing. And so part of that is this reenactment and this fake history aspect of Tombstone that Bisbee folks resent. And so okay, so, so in doing the reenactment, you were very self-conscious about not trying to do kind of a fake heritage marketing ploy. At the same time, I like Tombstone. And I think there's a lot, I think you can learn a lot about America by going and see what we reenact. You know, like, right, like we're, right. we're obsessed with, this is a country obsessed with reenactment and obsessed with self-mythologizing. And so to me, it was always, it was just a matter of convincing people that this wasn't a bad his, history. It wasn't about making good or bad history. It was about the act of doing it. And once people understood that, and then as the po political situation changed in this country after Trump elected, got, got elected, the, then I feel like people understood like the act of doing it and the showing it back to the world was important. And, that, and that's how we gathered steam at first, people were like, a reenactment of the deportation? Are we going to trivialize it? Are we going to make a joke out of it? But that's but this is the same thing as you hear in the film. You know, Chris Dietz wanted to do a reenactment 10 years ago for the 90th, or 10 years right, prior right. for the 90th. And people were saying that he was going to trivialize it. And, or Britt Hansen wanted to do a, uh, a musical, and people were saying, you're going to trivialize it. So, like, there was a lot of, the, you know, the grimness of the event itself, people were afraid of trivializing it, which really is, they're afraid of tombstoning it, in a way. Right. So, the film does both the reenactment of these events, but, of course, it also tells the story and narrates the events, as any historical documentary might. So, talk a bit about the research that you did and how you translated that historical research into kind of a filmic language and narrative outside of the reenactment itself because what's great about the film is these kind of two layers the reenactment and then the historical documentary and in interweaving those i think you capture something fairly unique about the way history and memory intersect so how did the research go on this well they're connected because because the the reenactment is an is obviously not a straightforward reenactment right like it's what you're watching is a group of people individuals and a group as a group working to try to understand something. So doing the historical work themselves. And so uh, to, to achieve that, part of it was working with Katie Benton Cohen from Georgetown, who right, is an right. expert, and she was our historical advisor. So for example, she has, because she's written about this and she has all these, uh, these original documents, she has all this, you know, all this material, she basically was able to do a couple things. One, provide us with those documents, 
So for example, when Richard is playing Harry Wheeler, he's actually, we actually put in front of him Harry Wheeler's testimonies. He had two. So he has access to the actual language that was spoken, a yeah. script in a way, a historical script. And so he's built up, and so what, you, what, what happens there is he's built up an entire lifetime of having an opinion about Harry Wheeler. Because, because he's from the town, he's sort of like, he knows that the, the deportation was bad, but he thinks that Wheeler's actions could be, def and that he was a good man who was in a bad situation. And like, he's working through these, this is a lifetime of opinion. He's in his 60s, basically, right? Right, right. His entire life, he's built up this opinion, and then you put down the historical records, and he starts to work through that. And then, there's like, and then he's dressed up and playing that. So therefore, you have like multiple layers of trying to get at the story, right? You have the, histor the historical record, the memories that this guy's developed, and then their collision and the reenactment. Right, and then he's working through that and creating a persona, which then he reacts to in real time. You, you have him saying, this doesn't feel right. I don't feel good about this, right? Right, so, right. So we, that, Katie was a crucial part of that sort of trajectory. The other aspect of it is, for example, Charles Bethay, who's you know, an amateur historian and, and does the P Copper Chronicles podcast about, about history in, in, the, in the area, Bisbee history and history in the area. He's, he's done all this research. He's from the area. He's obsessed with the deportation. He's obsessed with Bisbee history. We, you, we were able to use his writing and his research in, in the film. So that voiceover is written by him. So that's his voice sort of working through it as well. Um, then you have like Fernando, who has no idea. He doesn't come with a lifetime. And yet is the dramatic anchor of the film in many yeah. ways. Fernando playing one of the Wobblies who's Mexican-American, if I have right. that right. Yeah, so, his, so he comes out like an apolitical young person who, who, who doesn't care, doesn't, is not interested. And then we put the documents in front of him, and those documents are basically the historical records of the IWW, provided by Katie, of the IWW basically radicalizing and unionizing the Mexicans. They're the first union to ever do that. And that struck a chord with him, obviously. And right, so, in terms of contemporary events as well. Absolutely. And so, and so the historical record for him becomes something that he later, it, it ends up radicalizing him in a way that we didn't expect. And some of that is performance and some of that is, is an awareness of history that he didn't previously have. So, so that, I mean, th that's the sort of multiple layer way that we used research. And um, Katie also helped us sort of create a, a, a few composite characters and based on historical research uh, or, or not even composite characters, like people who we were directly representing, like Dora Bay and uh, a couple now, of- Are there composite characters in, in the film? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say Fernando is a composite character okay, right. of a Mexican worker. We, we created his backstory based on more based on his own, actually Fernando's real life, contemporary uh, life, mother. Yeah, yes. and 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 I would say Lori in some ways is a at least she's just basically playing like a romanticized version of a minor. And and how so far have you found the reception of the film, especially amongst historians, I suppose, who, for instance, may be troubled by composite characters, or have yeah, you gotten I mean, a positive reception? Absolutely. I mean, actually, historians so far, I mean, and I might be in for a rude awakening here, but like so far have been really receptive to the film. And I think that's because, you know, the way Kate, this is just paraphrasing Katie's reaction. Katie was ex excited as a historian because we're not trying to say that there is one, you know, voice of God uh, uh, version of events. And we're working, you know, 
working through the idea of, of historical memory. And that multi-layered process that I described is very exciting to her as yes. a historian and very exciting to the other, a few other historians that I've talked to because it's much more accurate to how we actually figure out what happened versus the, 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 the sort of myth of the historian, which is, I know the facts and therefore I can figure right. it out. But it actually lays the process bare and, and shows the inner workings of how we reconstruct the past. Yeah, and so so far it's been a great response, and and, and you know I didn't anticipate that, or I didn't. I guess I didn't. I didn't go into it sort of thinking. To me, it was it's much. You know, we're making a film, and we're and I'm interested in the ideas that are presented there, right? right? I'm interested that more importantly than that even is I'm interested in working with the town directly and the town is full of historians. So and, and in the process of making the film, what did you learn new about the town's history that surprised you that you didn't expect to find? Well, I guess I didn't, you know, the aspect of a company town and the psycho drama of a company town, it was never that clear to me until we really got in there. And, and, and that's and just just the the sheer existence. I mean, basically, like I am all I'm interested in hearing people like Dick Graham explain the so-called uh, what his view, words are the uh, management perspective, right? Mm. The the quote-unquote management perspective is a very powerful idea because it's really the history of America in the 20th centuries. There's the management perspective, and there's the not managed the workers. Right. Right? And the state perspective in this case, since there was a war going on, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and the management perspective and the state perspective are often uh, aligned. Find, yeah. find, their, find themselves being very cuddly. Um, and I was always interested in that. But I, and, but I, of course, I, you know, I went in sort of saying like, you know, we're going to find that out, uh, or we're going to use that to sort of excavate this this perspective. But the, but, and, and, but you leave. Going, I understand why a reasonable person could say this was complicated, and, and which is sort of a shocking thing, and I think actually very useful. Complicated in terms of rounding people up, rounding people up, and, and pouring them into the desert. Because remember that the Ludlow massacre had just happened, basically, and and from from the management perspective, it was better to round these people up than have blood on the streets of Bisbee. Uh -huh. From the management perspective, it was better to get these people out of town than to shut down the mines and literally kill the town. From the management perspective, the IWW was saying all these things like we're going to sabotage, we're going to blow up the, this. And, and the IWW had a rhetoric of violence and they never acted on it. Like they were never violent. The violence always came from the company side, right? But the, but, but the, but the rhetoric, you can kind of understand when, when there, there are so many stories of people going into, you know, IWW strikers going into businesses and saying, we're going to blow this up if, you're, if you don't join the strike. I mean, they weren't gonna do that but how do you know with that right, right. the fact that you you know you could i could leave that experience going i understand why it's complicated and i understand why this historical trauma has lasted this long because people are defensive about the complexity and that's that was a surprise frankly i mean i still it's still a, a, an atrocity i mean it's it's 1200 people being rounded up by gunpoint no Anglo-Saxons being round up. It was when the person in the film says that it was an ethnic cleansing, I think he's not wrong. Yeah. I mean, and, yeah. And, just to think, and just to say that, you know, it's just one of many uh, relatively small ethnic cleansings and sometimes huge ethnic cleansings that have happened in this country, of course. So uh, we don't use those terms because we don't like to think of ourselves in that way, but we should. 
But the fact that I can walk away going, I at least understand that other side is more surprising than I expected. All right. Well, much food for thought. It's really a wonderful film. I urge our listeners to take a look and to read uh, various historians weighing in on their responses, including Katie Benton Cohen and this issue of the American Historical Review. And uh, I thank Robert Green for joining us. Thank you very much, Robert. Thank you so much for having me. It was great. That was Alex Lichtenstein speaking with filmmaker Robert Green about his recent film, Bisbee 17 which is also the subject of a roundtable in the journal's June 2019 issue. You can listen to more episodes of this podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud. Find us with the search term American Historical Association. I'm Daniel Story, and this is AHR Interview. Thanks for listening.